Any questions this morning? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure we go. Is it Saturday? Saturday yeah, Saturday night. It's my favorite day of the year because we get an extra hour of sleep. Uh, practice, practice. <laughs> oh, extra hour of practice. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. <laughs> The question <clears throat> is about an anxiety attack with a lot of thought and emotion coming, and um, how do you let go of it? There's two ways that I would recommend working with it. One is, uh, if you can't at first be mindful of it, meaning that you can recognize that it's anxiety, and then accept that it's happening. Um, compassion is really helpful. So compassion is this ability to kind of step outside of oneself at first and, and just look and see that one is in pain. And usually in an anxiety attack we're in pain and there's a tendency to try to get rid of the fear rather than to open to that experience. So we tend to want to let it go before we can exp- we're willing to experience it. Uh, so if that willingness not to experience it isn't there, it's helpful to kind of step outside and kind of look in and just see that the body and mind is in pain and see if you can just care about it from the outside with this very soft care. Usually that care you know, if we can soften into the experience, we'll shift, we can shift into seeing if we're able to experience anxiety like we would, you know, what is the sound of a bird? What is fear? If we can find that same kind of relationship of exploring it and seeing that it's just for the first time, you know, what is the experience of fear? And in that, when we can shift to that exploration, that pure exploration, it's actually not, it might not move it to pleasant, it might still be unpleasant, but it's amazing, it's like uh, when there are extreme attacks, it's like being in a hurricane, and it's, there's an eye in the hurricane, and it's wonderful to experience it when you can free oneself of that and aversion to it. You know, and it's helpful to note, if you're trying to be mindful of it, it helps to note fear or anxiety just very lightly to remind oneself what's happening and to see if you can get out of the head, (laughs) you know, get out of the story about it. Uh, Because fear can attach itself to anything. You know, that's why I often note fear attack number two billion, 
222 because it can fear, the experience of fear, like anything, can latch on to any kind of story. But actually, if we can drop out of that, the head and the story, and just experience it as body sensations and let it come and go, it's usually not a problem. The problem is usually the story and the aversion to the experience. Letting, letting, yeah, right. Letting go happens when we uh, stop identifying with it. So the first step is letting it be. If we're trying to let it go out of aversion, we're reinforcing aversion. You know, so that usually doesn't work. It's sticky. The fear is sticky because the more we push it away, the more power it has. And until we can accept it and let it be, usually we won't um, let it go. We won't not identify with it. Because it's, we don't see that it's just fear. It's my fear. And there's, you know, it becomes something we have to let go of rather than that would we have that attitude about the sound of a bird. You know, if you sit there trying to let go of a sound of a bird, it would be kind of weird. You know, we don't have that relationship to the sound of a bird that we're trying to sit there and let go of it. We just know hearing, and it's not my sound, or the, you know, it's just the, the sound coming and going. With fear, <clears throat> we can have the same relationship to fear, that it's just fear. Even if it comes back 200 times in an hour, it's okay. It's just fear coming and going. A bird sound might happen 200 times in an hour, but we don't think that something's wrong. The freedom doesn't come from getting rid of it. The freedom comes from being able to experience it fully so we're no longer afraid of the experience of fear. Right, 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 right. Is there a point where it's skillful to just try to force myself to pay, um, to, to just uh, try to get away from it by staying with the sensations and the, you know, of walking? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just trying to escape. <laughs> <laughs> I would say to look at the intention. <laughs> if we have the intention, the same, the same movement of mind can come out of escape or aversion, or it can come out of wisdom. So that moving away from something, if we're not able to be mindful of it, to rest the mind so that we get enough strength to be able to see it clearly isn't, isn't avoidance, it's smart, it's wise. So the mo- usually with something like a storm, one would come back to the breath many, many times. You, you, would, you would go to the experience of fear, touch it a little bit, and then move back to the breath. Go to the experience of fear, touch it a little bit, and go back to the breath, or open up 
to sound, some way so that you're not in it so much that one's drowning in it. Uh, so it really helps to move away from it at times, uh, so that you get enough strength, uh, openness of mind, uh, to go back into it. It's the same with physical pain, and it's the same with emotional pain. You take a little dose of it, of the fear, and see, oh, I can experience this and move away from it, rather than to take such a big dose that it's debilitating and you, you can't see it clearly. I would walk, walking, you know, if you stay with the movement of the legs, you know, just walk, and then every once in a while check in and see if you can notice any fear. And if you do touch it lightly, or do, or do some compassion, and then forget about it, ignore it, and walk again for a while, and then tune into it again, and if it's still there, see if you can experience it a little bit, you don't have to get to the bottom of fear and feel like you have, you, you've got... You know, we tend to want to know and get it and feel like, okay, I know how to work with fear, and feel like we, it will never come back for the rest of our life. And, and that's not how it is. It's much more that you get a little experience of working with it, and it's like, oh, great. And then you can just forget it for a while, and then you don't have to worry about it coming back. <laughs> I mean, if you think that you've gotten rid of fear for the rest of your life, you know, it's kind of a, a delusion. <laughs> you know, it just... It's... it's it's something I wouldn't worry about, that's for sure. <laughs> if, you, if, you it, if you touch it lightly, if you, if you see it again, and, and it's still very strong, and you know, it's still very much a hurricane, mm-hmm. still just touch it and then come back to the steps? Just go, yeah. If, if it's feeling like if it's too much and you're not able to see it very clearly, move away from it. That, because that's smart. You're going to lose. If you go into it and there's no mindfulness, it's going to become worse and worse and worse. It's just strategy. Yeah, it, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, occasionally I experience like a knee weakening fear. Mm-hmm. And you know, I know that that's coming out of control and aversion. But why does it have, maybe this is more a medical question, but why does it have such a profound effect, you know, on the body? Why, why does, it's like a drain opens and all the energy just, you know, leaks out. What, do you have any idea about what's going on there? It's, well, we tend to be afraid of death. I mean, <laughs> if, <laughs> if, you, if you look at it really closely, fear has a lot to do with the experience of being annihilated or, you know, that we're then uh, not being, we're quite afraid of, we're afraid of pain. You know, uh, there's levels to pain. We're very afraid of pain. We're very afraid of not existing. And when, it, when the experience is strong, I call it sewing machine legs. You know, it's like 
you know, there's a way in which the whole system just, that's fear. Or you could call that terror. You know, there's levels, <laughs> there's levels to fear. Terror is when it really drains us pretty heavily. Uh, and it's okay. You know, it's just fear. Uh, I mean, we come on a retreat to really experience our human life very fully. And the fear and a sense of me being a separate me, fear and I are like inseparable. And so often we have to face this experience of fear to untangle who we are. Okay, when, when it is that strong, mm-hmm. and it affects the body that much, you know, I guess all I do is just pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And I try to be aware of the effort to control it. And I see that the fear and the control real closely tied together. Right, it, the control is usually aversion. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's like, if you can let go of the, you know, if one can see the aversion clearly and see if one can get to the experience of fear, it's usually, wow, you know, it can be, wow, look what's happening into the body. It's just amazing. Fear is amazing and extraordinary to experience when there isn't any aversion to it. And you can, if you're walking, sometimes it's helpful to just kind of go off by oneself somewhere and just kind of watch what it's like. It's amazing. It's okay. Often one has to bring in compassion because it's usually like a two-year-old part of us that surfaces. You know, it's not like we feel like we're a wise old man or woman. We usually feel like a terrified little kid. And, And usually we have to bring in, it's okay, you know, compassion, care about ourselves, uh, let it come and go. Mix the mindfulness and compassion. And then it's, it's just fear, just like it's just hearing. There's hurricanes in this world as well as sunny days. Hmm. Somebody must have given a talk about fear. (laughs) Have a good day. Any questions this morning?
letting that wash through. <laughs> the question is about working with sexual desire energy, the energy of it, and then the desire part. Yeah, there is no place to go. Um, If you're doing vipassana, it's really helpful to see if you can explore, you know, with that pure exploration, the non-judgmental attention, the actual physical sensations that are happening and where they are in the body. And because they tend to be intense, it's really helpful to keep a relationship up with any with whatever anchor you're using. So if sound is an anchor for you, you would, you would explore the energy, the sensations, and then go to sound, or you'd go to the breath as a, you know, to um, move out of it, to get a rest from it, uh, as much as you need to if you're getting lost in it. You know, so that's the, the first thing is to remember to explore it, but to come back to something neutral to explore it, to come back to something neutral. Uh, And however much you need to do that, that could be really a lot moving away from it and just touching it a little bit, depending on how overwhelming it is for you. So it could be you you spend a few seconds with it and then move back to something neutral. Maybe another few minutes pass and you go to it and then move to something neutral. Just as a way to get an experience of opening to that energy, experiencing it without drowning in it. And I'm not sure how you're drowning in it. It could be that you're getting lost in the thoughts about it. It's a very, very strong energy. You know, it's a life force energy, and there's an, it, we tend to get into having to do something with it, or that something's wrong with experiencing it. Uh, and a lot of the difficulty comes from not being able to really be willing to experience the intensity of those sensations uh, without doing something about it, just to experience what that is. Uh, and it often will go into a story or a fantasy <clears throat> if we're not able to experience the intensity and the pleasure of it. 
Sometimes it's pleasurable, sometimes it might not be just pleasurable, sometimes there'll be a mixture of when it moves into desire, uh, in terms of thinking, it might not be so pleasurable, really. Uh, but if we, don't, if we don't know how to experience it, we'll get caught in it. And having, really, a relationship of, to something neutral within it is very, very important. And it's, in some ways, it's just, it's just intense sensation. And then if it moves into attachment, you know it's just attachment, it's just desire. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's because we're not willing to experience this fully that we get caught. You know, that, that sense of, yeah. The other side to it is that if there's any kind of loneliness or wanting metta, wanting love, if there's some kind of experience of uh, wanting that's going on, it's helpful to be able to acknowledge that that's going on. There's the difference between the sexual energy and wanting love. And we often confuse those. to the max. (laughs) So, yeah, so I think when you tend to try to be figuring out what's happening, I would look for that wanting the love, because it's often mixed up, and that's where we tend to get lost. That wanting, that yearning, is really running the world. You know, it's, it's what we get the sexual energy isn't as difficult as actually being able to experience that yearning and that wanting. But also, again, keep, try to keep it simple. You know, if we get caught in figuring it out, we can go off for hours or minutes and not really get to the experience of the wanting or the sexual energy. I don't know if you've ever heard a coyote howling here, a coyote howling or a wolf howling, but there's a way in which that's the energy of wanting or yearning. And it, it's okay. It's okay to be able to let yourself fully experience that. And then if, if one can't be with that in, in terms of vipassana, you can be with it with metta. You can send compassion to yourself or metta to yourself, which helps soften, soften one to then be able to go back to the experience of wanting. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, all mental states are to be accepted and acknowledged in the practice, I understand. I also understand that some mental states m- ought not to be cultivated. For example, anger. Um, As a follow-up question to this, would uh, sexual desire be one of those mental states to be acknowledged but not cultivated on on the street? And then for uh, 
those who have uh, talked about renunciation last night, who have uh, in a renunciate mode with regard to the sexuality, would that be, is that valid? So in some ways, would that modify your last answer that you would not, you wouldn't want to invite too much cultivation of experiencing that sexual mm -hmm. energy? Um, whether you're a monk or a nun or a lay person, one has to come to terms with sexual energy. Sure. And so there's a real difference in cultivating uh, fantasy than actually being able to let that energy come through like a cloud would pass through the sky. It's a life energy and if you repress it, you tend to shut down the body. If you indulge it with a lot of thinking, one's lost, one isn't in the present moment and it, it, it shuts down that energy. So the, the way to work with it, as with everything else in the practice, is to be, see if you can be in the present moment, not in the head, not lost in thinking, but actually let that energy come and go without doing something about it. Just like you'd let a sound come and go, just like you let the breath come and go, you'd just let the sexual energy come and go without doing, without doing something. No matter who you are in this world, that's um, a big task and a big accomplishment to learn how to do that. It's, it's, I think when we're out in the world, one has to remember that emotion can be a message for us to listen to as well. It's, you know, we tend to be able to listen to thoughts and distinguish helpful thoughts from not helpful thoughts, or there's emotion that are, you know, that are helpful and not so helpful. But when we're here in retreat, it's really, the task is to learn how to fully be present with what's happening and not identify with it. Cultivating the mind state is getting lost in the, in the story. If you have that experience a number of times, you, what you would do is note what you think the emotion is, because you have a sense of what it is. And instead of going to the breath or the anchor, I would just very lightly feel what's happening in the body, and then go back to the, the breath or whatever anchor you're using. Uh, you're not trying to dig anything out. You're just trying to let whatever's on the surface, whatever happening, happen. So if you don't notice the emotion or any sensations with it, it's fine. Uh, but it, it helps to just feel the body before you go back to the anchor. 
it makes space for whatever's there. You know, it's like putting out a sign that says, if you <laughs> kind of welcome, but no hurry. <laughs> Have a good November day. Any questions this morning? Could you talk a bit louder, please? question is about um, when there's physical sensations that call the attention, how long do you stay there? Can you stay there for a long time and not go back to the primary anchor? The anchor is supposed to be neutral. Uh, And if you get called anywhere, the instruction is to let the attention go to what's predominant, what's calling the attention, and to stay there until it's no longer predominant. Um, There are times when the sensations will be predominant, predominant, um, and there might be a certain point where, unless they're neutral, you know, it's helpful to go back to the anchor. So that one wouldn't want to be reinforcing attachment or aversion if you're staying with sensations. Um, But if they are just predominant and you don't feel like there's any movement toward aversion or attachment, you can stay there a long time. And then it might be that you might lose interest or it might be that um, they no longer call your attention. And then you go back to the, the anchor. If you have any confusion about it, I would say just go back to the anchor.
hearing in the mind Maharshi. Do they practice Vipassana or how do they come by their knowledge? The question. I hear that you know, this is the only way, and then I, I see folks very respected and revered, and I'm wondering how they came to be. The question is around the Satipatthana Sutta, where uh, the Buddha talks about the four foundations of mindfulness and is teaching them as the path to wisdom. Uh, and then sometimes people up here, teachers will quote from Srinasargadatta, who comes from the lineage um, of Ramana Maharshi. And the question is, um, is that, is the four foundations of mindfulness the only way? Is that what you meant? Yeah, it, it, it seems to me that I'm hitting and missing, you know, with this practice. I'm wondering, I, I don't doubt the efficacy, because mm-hmm. I see so many of the teachers here, too. Well, that's, this might be more of the meat of the question, you know. He's saying that he's hitting or missing with this practice and wondering about um, it, how it's working. It doesn't seem like it's for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a long question. <laughs> In terms of the first part of the question, uh, I tend to be very careful of a phrase, this is the only way. I mean, you'll find them in any, often in any old tradition that tends to have been from a time where communication systems weren't very strong between one area of the world and another. Uh, and you'll usually find in old traditions there's a way in which one will, you'll hear this only way thing. But I think that meant, if you take it in context, it usually means uh, it was the only <laughs> it was the only way people knew about in a way. You know, it's, there's one way in which uh, that phrase, I think for us nowadays, you need to be careful of believing that uh, you know, I was raised Catholic where that was the only way. And if you look in a lot of traditions, you'll hear that they're the only way. But it's kind of myopic if one takes it in that context. I think we tend to teach from a place of grounding people in this um, Vipassana practice. And then you'll find that we make use of other traditions in terms of metaphors or context. Uh, and I think that it's really helpful to respect all the traditions and know that, um, that depending on the understanding of a teacher, they'll be able to help you, you know, understand. In terms of the second part of the question, um, Sometimes it's very hard for us to tell what's working for us halfway through a, a three-month retreat. I mean, it, it, I think it's helpful to talk to your teachers about this part of the question, what's working for you and what isn't. Um, 
it might be that you need to shift how you're doing the practice. Sometimes, you know, there's many, many different ways of doing this practice. So one can do it from a more relaxed, open place, which I think is helpful for some people. And I think you can do it more, you know, kamikaze-like. You know, there's different ways you can do the practice, and they work for... We're all very unique and different, and that's why we have people talk to teachers individually, because it helps to fine-tune. In terms of the four foundations of mindfulness, it's really... It covers everything in, in some ways. You know, it's somewhat... In some ways, it doesn't miss out on any way that you can practice there's so much included in it. It's just a matter of finding your doorway into deepening practice. Question is what to tell your aging, <laughs> your aging parents who live an hour away, and your three brothers are going to be there. Why you're not there for Thanksgiving? Mm. <laughs> Steve says a prior commitment. <laughs> Steve says Steve says vegetarian. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm on retreat. You know, it's like you're on retreat. Um, I don't come from a family that's ever understood me very much anyway. So, I mean, this would just never, this would just, wouldn't be a big issue in my family because they don't understand anything that I do. They live, my family lives an hour away and has never been here. And I've been here since 1978, so, you know, um, I don't expect much understanding. But if you think that they might be able to grasp what you're doing here, and until people really do the practice, it's quite hard for them to grasp uh, the silent part of it and the, re- the retreat aspect. There has to be some understanding of the contemplative tradition whether it's Christian or Buddhist or, you know, whatever, you know, um, tradition one comes from, Judaism, it's like, you know, and then it's, it's usually the changes that parents see in us over time usually make, they, they find that they make space for uh, you taking time out because they see these changes and they're happy for you and they're happy for themselves because there's a change usually in the relationships that are positive. And so I think that there might, there might be some way that you can just say, um, you might not understand this, but this has really been helping me. And we'll have a really, you know, make a time to see them afterwards. Yeah, and you might say, I'm sorry, I won't be there, you know, or, you know if that's how you feel. Mm-hmm.
what, what tends to be working for us in our practice is really if you start noticing that you're relaxing more, uh, that the first whole part of uh, meditation is the ability to relax and open to what's happening in the moment. And out of that relaxation and opening to what's happening in the present moment, um, because you'll be with your direct experience, the understanding comes just from that continuous, you know, it might not be moment to moment, but uh, over time, a way in which we continually are learning from our own experience. And if that's happening for you, uh, and it might, that the practice is working, but sometimes we tend to judge what the actual situation is that we're learning from. So, you know, that, that you can't really control. And so you, it might be that one is learning a lot about aversion. And if, if you don't like that that's the particular thing you're learning about, you know, that we might be judging the practice accordingly. Um, but that's what we tend to be learning about, or if we tend to be learning about uh, yearning or loneliness, that you know, whatever it is that might be difficult, uh, that's actually our, our best teacher. But we tend to think that uh, it's only these moments of peak experiences that that's when the practice is working. So be careful of judging what's working, because it's often what we don't think to be working that's working. <laughs> it takes a lot of patience. Have a good day. Could you speak a little louder, please?
the question is, um, he's been here for seven weeks and uh, was feeling kind of like he was on cruise control and he learned of a dear friend's daughter's death um, and he feels no compassion for, he feels uh, no trouble having compassion for his friend, but there's a lot of petty thoughts coming up and I would imagine, is it self-hatred that, are you feeling self-hatred for the thoughts that are coming up? Can you be more specific about the kind of thoughts that you're, what kind of judgment? Death is the hardest thing for us to understand, and especially the death of a child. It's, um, un- you could put it in the unbearable category, uh, and yet we have to go through it, we have to bear it. Uh, and I think that there are ways when this happens that our mind will tend to try to find ways to reason about it. You know, it's like to, to find something reasonable or known. Uh, so I think it's important for you to be able to let the content of the thoughts um, come and go. We can't get rid of content, but we can hold it uh, from a place of a bigger emptiness, a bigger awareness, uh, and hopefully with some compassion. Uh, So I think it's really important for you to try to feel some compassion for yourself in terms of that uh, death brings up for us the deepest fear. And it puts, it's like you just had a, getting that information is like turning up the fire of the retreat, you know, you're off cruise control and now the fire's up really high. It's a wonderful opportunity to see if you can really make space for all the, all the emotions, all the thoughts, um, and to do that with as much compassion as you can. It, you can't control, <laughs> you can't control all the reactions you'll have. That's you know, ranging from beautiful compassion to the deepest fear. And that, that's what a situation like this will call out in us. It'll bring out everything, and that's healing. It, it would, it's a good sign that all that's coming up, 
it means that you're not you're not repressing anything. You're letting it all come out. Everything. Every human being has all of this, all of these sides. We have all of it in us, and it's once we start to let it become visible and see it, we can be compassionate for everyone. I'm sure your friend is having huge ranges of emotion, huge ranges of feelings. It's the hardest thing to deal with. I, I would suggest that you take some, you know, at least do some walking outside, maybe take some walks, go out in the forest. It's like um, trying to find some softness and allowing. And as I was saying the other night, the forest knows how to die. It's like there's a way in which our culture finds it very hard to accept death, and especially a sudden death. It, it's a shock. It's a huge shock. Uh, I do believe that everybody has their time, you know, and it's really hard to understand from our little perspective, but from a bigger perspective, there is a way in which I remember when I was in a car accident recently, it was like I, it was so clear that somehow I was meant to keep going. It could have been just the opposite in that moment. There's a, there's a way in which we all do have our our time, but it's really hard to understand and to accept. You'll need a lot of gentleness just to let yourself go through it all. But I think you'll find you'll come to a very deep, deep place of understanding with it all. The other practice I might suggest, if you don't know it, which is the equanimity practice of the four Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, uh, equanimity. Uh, if you don't know it, I would ask you know, the teacher that you work with to teach it to you, um, because I think it, in situations like this, um, equanimity requires the most understanding. And the, there's this wide range of joy and sorrow in this world. And it's, if you just tune into the sorrow in oneself, or the joy in oneself, and tune into the joy and sorrow of all the human beings on the earth, it's such a vast, wide range. Uh, and it's very hard for us to be able to hold that range. Um, and the equanimity practice is about finding some balance of mind within this, within this vast range. If one just does the compassion, uh, which is tuning into the suffering in this world with an openness of heart, uh, it can tend to get unbalanced. So the equanimity is meant to help balance uh, opening to the pain in this world and caring about it. The equanimity is having a, 
a deep balance of mind in the face of this range of joy and sorrow. So there is a practice that you can do that I think um, try to hold this as well as with the compassion and the vipassana. Resistance? Pardon me? Do you mean resistance? I don't know if it's resistance. It's just like, like... It's like just, you know, there's a very, very strong feeling and it'll get stronger and stronger and then suddenly it's mine. You know, okay. it's my The question is about whenever there's a strong emotion and she wants to be able to let it come. Um, At a certain point, there's an identification with it as mine. And then what happens? If you can notice that you're identified with it, you know, that it's like in Vipassana, there's a purity in the way that one can work with it and that you just let it happen as it's happening. So if, in terms of an identification, you know, another way to think of that is a reaction. Um, It might be that one's reacting with aversion or maybe reacting with attachment. That's, um, That's all it is. So if one can uh, get out of the way and notice that reaction, um, that's just, you, you wouldn't try to feel the emotion per se at that point, you would just try to feel that aversion or attachment. And then when that, if that passed, one would, and the emotion was still there, one would shift to the emotion. I think sometimes, um, it's hard to say in a strong emotion, say if there's a strong emotion of anger, sometimes it's hard to say if there's aversion to the anger or just extreme anger. You know, at some point, it's pretty wild and one can't really tell. And that's okay, you just do your best you could to just feel anger. Um, If you you notice a feeling that... um, this is mine. You might feel like um, taking a break, going to the breath or going to sound. 
and then going back to it, going to the breath, sound, going back to it. Um, you can still try to experience what's happening even if there's an identification. It might be very subtle. It might not, but um, you wouldn't try to get rid of it. You just try to, try to see if you can go through it with that, with that contraction along with it. With a strong emotion, it'll feel like it's very total. You know, it'll be very big. <laughs> uh, and that any way that you can get space, usually it requires really stepping back and getting a, a bigger space to hold it, hold it with. Uh, and I always recommend with a strong emotion to move out of it, move back into it, move out of it, move back into it. Um, because it's so... A strong emotion is usually so unneutral, and it's really helpful to find a place that's neutral. Uh, and that might be more of what's happening, that you can't tell if you're identified or not. It, it might not even matter. It might be that it's just so big that you need to find a place that's neutral and to kind of rest the mind a bit and then try it. And it's okay if you don't feel up for it, just ignore it. Uh, Don't forget to keep it simple. One step at a time, one breath at a time.